What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Bill Gates. Did he warn us about the COVID-19 pandemic? Here with coronavirus, it's quite fatal and quite transmissible. So it's the nightmare that we've been talking about for a long time. The billionaire philanthropist and Microsoft co-founder talks to our own Becky Quick about the race for a coronavirus vaccine. There's an approach called the RNA vaccine that people like Moderna, CureVac, and others are using that in 2015, we'd identified that as very promising for pandemics and for other applications as well. And so if everything goes perfectly with the RNA approach, we could actually beat the 18 months. And Gates on the economy, how soon is too soon to go back to work? Until we can say to people that we're tracking this thing so well that actually going out to your job, to a car factory, to a construction site, that those are safe enough. Until we get there, which we're absolutely not, no one should think the government can wave a wand and all of a sudden, you know, the economy is anything like it was before this happened. It's Thursday, April 9th, 2020. Squawk Pod with Bill Gates begins right after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC, and today we're bringing you a special conversation with Bill Gates, the Microsoft co-founder and billionaire philanthropist on the worldwide spread of coronavirus. I caught up with Becky Quick. All right, Becky, we're on Zoom today talking about Bill Gates. Well, Bill Gates has been looking into viruses. I think it's just kind of one of his hobbies. He's got a lot of them, but he's been looking into viruses and potential epidemics for years. Um, he's just a person who loves science, who studies and tries to learn constantly and teach himself constantly. And because through the Gates Foundation, they have such a huge network of uh, other places that they're getting information from, whether that be other countries, whether that be other non-government organizations, whether that be government organizations, because their health initiatives have touched so many different places and have um, built up connections in so many different places. You know, stuff we're learning about so quickly with this novel virus. As recently as March 5th, there were only 11 cases in the United States. This thing's only been around since the end of last year, COVID-19, named for 2019, because it really came up in December of 2019. And uh, people are learning as quickly as they can, but it's hard to track all that information. And I think the Gates Foundation is doing just about the best job of that. The Gates Foundation has worked so much in vaccines and polio and malaria and a lot of these things in the developing world, who would have thought that the work that they were doing in 
the developing world has come into handy here in the U.S. Yeah, probably Bill Gates. <laughs> okay, let's go ahead and start now. Bill, just want to thank you so much for being with us today. Good to talk to you. Back in 2015, you gave a TED Talk that was unfortunately pretty prophetic. If anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war. Not missiles, but microbes. But we've actually invested very little in a system to stop an epidemic. We're not ready for the next epidemic. When did you first start to think that COVID-19 might be the epidemic that you'd been worried about? Well, anytime you get a human-to-human transmissible respiratory virus, uh, it could be the one. And so you're always watching whether it's a variant of the flu or any other respiratory virus, uh, because once it's transmissible at a certain level, because of all the travel we do, it's likely to go completely global. And then the only thing that can help you out is if it's not very fatal. But here with coronavirus, uh, it's quite fatal uh, and quite transmissible. So it's, it's the nightmare that we've been talking about for a long time. And sadly, although a few things like this coalition uh, for vaccines, CEPI, uh, were done uh, after 2015, a very small percentage of what we should have done, where we would have diagnostics very quickly, uh, drugs very quickly, and a vaccine uh, far more rapidly. Why don't you walk us around the globe right now? We're hearing things that maybe things are improving in China, maybe they're coming out the other side of things, although there is some talk of potentially a second wave of transmissions that's taking place. With all the information that you're getting right now, what's the best view you have of what's happening in China, in Europe, here in the United States and other places? Well, China took the situation in Wuhan, uh, which was quite dramatic, and, and by extreme interventions in terms of reducing movement, uh, they were able to crush that epidemic. Uh, you know, those hospitals are gone. Uh, you know, look at the commerce. Uh, stores are open now in China and nowhere else, whereas before it was the opposite. And so it's a real thing that they took a significant number of cases, not only flattened it, but brought it down to very small levels. Now, as they open up, there will be slight rebounds, and it's very valuable uh, for them to share where that's happening, because all the countries that have substantial epidemics uh, now have to think, okay, once you get down the absolute level, what, before having a vaccine, what kind of activities should we re-engage in? You know, probably manufacturing we can do, uh, probably construction we can do, hopefully because of the number of young people involved, uh, we can do education, but we're gonna have this intermediate period of opening up uh, and it won't be normal until we get a, an amazing vaccine uh, to the entire world. You, you talk about these intermediate steps. Uh, the president tweeted earlier today, just a few hours ago, that he wants to get us reopened sooner rather than later. What's the timeline that you kind of have in mind of, of, of when we might be able to get back to business, when we might be able to open the economy, when things start heading more towards a path towards normal? Well, unfortunately, the U.S. isn't uh, uniformly shut down. And so what you're going to see is lots of exponential increase in various communities. 
Also, even though our testing numbers are going up, the number of days to get a response, uh, you know, it should be under 24 hours. And even for priority things, it's taking longer than that. Uh, and so that, you know, there's no system of prioritization that still needs to be fixed. If we get our act together countrywide, and if the compliance is very high, and that testing, including some innovations like the self-swab that our foundation has driven, if those get into place, by early June, we'll be looking at some type of opening up. Now, the definition of that is what we need to be working on now, studying what's been done in South Korea, what's being done in China, uh, and various parts of Europe, you know, including Sweden, who uh, at least as yet has chosen not to go uh, for a full uh, shutdown like many other countries. Where do you think things stand in America? I mean, it, it's different in different pockets, as you pointed out. In, in Seattle, you guys were kind of on the forefront of it. Here in the New York area, um, we're, we're looking towards that peak right now. But the number of cases and how quickly they've multiplied has been kind of stunning. Where, where do we stand around the country as you hear about outbreaks in other places like New Orleans, Chicago, and beyond? Yeah, our partner, uh, IHME, uh, uh, if you go to healthdata.org, you can find they take localities around the U.S. and look at their prediction uh, for when the cases will peak and therefore projections on how much ICU capacity and ventilators will be needed. And they assume a pretty good compliance. You know, what you see is that a lot of counties uh, have this exponential growth. And wherever you're, you have cases and people still mixing around, that is what's going to happen. And so it's great that Seattle, uh, you know, the doubling rate is down pretty dramatically here. And we're the first community with the thing called the Seattle Corona uh, Virus Assessment Network. We're doing the first surveillance to see what cases were missed, what's the age structure, and understanding that transmission. And the data back from that will be a key input to designing those opening up policies, what, uh, what, should, be, what should be done there. So Seattle is, is leading in some ways. Sadly, we had the first imported case and uh, a previous effort, the Seattle Flu Network um, that I ran, actually uh, was the first to see community spread because we were doing testing even when you weren't supposed to test people uh, who hadn't actually gone outside the country. Uh, so yes, some places are near their peak, but just because things start to come down that's not the time for opening up. The absolute level has to be very, very low, and you have to have a new testing system that prioritizes seeing any new cases and doing contact tracing, quarantine enforcement, uh, that the Asian countries uh, are great examples of doing that in a very strong national level uh, approach. Bill, we have uh, guests who come on our program pr pretty frequently and say that maybe the cure is worse than the disease. What's your response to that? Well, I think it's very difficult when uh, you have a lot of people dying of a disease that even if the government says, okay, let's uh, keep the GDP reduction down, the behavior of people in terms of wanting to travel or go to events or even go to a restaurant, it's been utterly changed by uh, the concerns about this disease. And so until we can say to people that we're tracking this thing so well that actually going out to your job uh, 
you know, to a car factory, uh, to a construction site, uh, that those are safe enough uh, that, you know, we feel confident you can do those things. Until we get there, which we're absolutely not, uh, no one should think the government can wave a wand and all of a sudden, you know, the economy is anything like it was before this happened. That awaits either a miracle therapeutic that has an over 95% cure rate or broad usage of the vaccine. And uh, so, you know, we've had a, a demand side shock and a supply side shock. And that demand side piece is both mediated by fear of infection and by the overall uh, wealth effects of many people losing their jobs and entire industries will be operating at a far lower level than in a, a normal economy. Let's talk a little bit about what the Gates Foundation is doing. First of all, how much information you're getting, where you're getting that information, because I, I get the feeling you probably know more than just about any place else. You've agreed that you're going to spend more than $100 million on this. Where, where is that money being spent? What do you think is most hopeful in, in what might help us in this situation? Well, the areas uh, that we have the, the deepest expertise in is how you do testing, uh, how you find drugs uh, that will save lives, and how you get a, a vaccine uh, that making you know seven billion uh, of those is is going to be a, an incredible challenge. And so, you know, we've taken our normal work, you know, on polio eradication or some of our HIV, TB work, and we've had to redirect that uh, to making sure we understand which of the therapeutics really are promising with actual data, uh, picking which of the many vaccine efforts it's worth putting a lot of money behind and building that manufacturing in parallel with the uh, safety and efficacy work, which is very difficult to do, you know, probably will take about 18 months uh, to, before we can get uh, to a significant level. So therapeutics could come a lot sooner. Things like manufactured antibodies or using the blood of recovered uh, patients in order to help treat people who are just getting sick. Those, uh, there's enough of them that in aggregate, I'd say it's very likely we'll have uh, those interventions in the four to six month time frame. But how much that'll cut the death rate and these overloads uh, you know, is still a bit uncertain. Uh, that comes quicker than the large-scale vaccine availability. You're thinking 18 months, even with all the work that you've already done to this point and the planning that you are taking with lots of different potential uh, vaccinations and building up for that now? Yeah, so the, there's an approach called the RNA vaccine that people like Moderna, CureVac, uh, and others are using mm -hmm. that in 2015, we'd identified that as very promising uh, for pandemics and for uh, other applications as well. And so if everything goes perfectly uh, with the RNA approach, we could actually beat the 18 months. We don't want to create unrealistic expectations. The efficacy of vaccines in older people is always a huge challenge. You know, it turns out the flu vaccine uh, isn't that effective in elderly people. Most of the benefit comes from younger people not uh, spreading it because they're vaccinated. And that, that benefits on a community basis, the elderly. Here, we clearly need a vaccine that works 
in the upper age range because they're uh, most at, at risk of that. And doing that so that you amp it up so it works in older people and yet you don't have side effects. You know, if we have, you know, one in 10,000 uh, side effects, that's, you know, way more, 700,000, uh, you know, people who will suffer from that. So really understanding the safety at gigantic scale across all age ranges, you know, pregnant, male, female, undernourished, uh, existing comorbidities, it's very, very hard. And that actual decision of, okay, let's go and give this vaccine to the entire world, uh, governments will have to be involved because there will be some risk and indemnification needed before that can uh, be decided on. Let me ask you sort of rapid fire, a bunch of questions that, that we get different answers from depending on every person we ask, but I think you have better sources. <laughs> what is the mortality rate? What, 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 what is happening right now? What, how many people do you think it kills percentage-wise? Because you don't see all the cases, uh, you know, you get the denominator wrong. It's clearly, you know, 1%, 1.2%. Germany is a great example uh, where they got their testing act together and they have interventions uh, you know, and they're at about that rate. The China data uh, after the Wuhan overload came in at about that rate. Places like Spain and Italy aren't testing broadly yet. Uh, you know, their testing is even more limited than ours, which is still completely misprioritized. So, uh, you know, it's not, not much more than 1.2%. If you have a fully functioning health system um, to treat those who get serious respiratory problems. What about asymptomatic spread? I've read that anywhere from 10 to 25 percent of, of the spread could be coming from people who don't show symptoms. What do you think it is? We have the this Seattle Coronavirus Assessment Network that's really going to understand that. Um, I think it's very unlikely the numbers are anywhere that high. I know there were studies, but the way they were done, uh, you know, chest CT scans are going to show you other diseases. Uh, it's very unlikely there's a lot of asymptomatic who never become symptomatic, and yet they're infecting people. And the work, and there's many countries that the foundation has gathered together on this, uh, including the UK and Germany, and we're going to get some other sites in the US on this. We need to know that number because that deeply affects uh, rebounds when opening up. Uh, and there is some data that suggests it's not a gigantic number, but very, very important to pin that down. Serological testing, the idea that you could test and see who's got antibodies in their blood and then maybe say perhaps they have immunity. Does that sound like a good plan or something that we should be working towards? Well, it's not very interesting because the extreme measures we're taking are to try to make sure that the total infection rate uh, is a small percentage of the population. You know, so the U.S., uh, we should end up with less than 10 million overall infections. So that 10 million out of 330 million is not a meaningful amount of herd immunity. Now, those people, the most interesting thing about those people, you know, maybe they could go do risky jobs. Uh, but the, the thing we're working on, we have six company consortium, is to look and see if the blood uh, in two different forms uh, from those recovered patients can be used as a prophylaxis or therapeutic in people who are getting sick. And that uh, you know, we're, that's likely to be fairly promising, although it'll take us a few months to be sure of that. But the serological test is more about 
understanding the science than it being actually individually actionable individually. The PCR test, which is very sensitive, that uh, we need to prioritize. Uh, that is the key to tracing contacts and really getting people to go into serious quarantine. Serological only goes positive after you've infected most everyone you're going to infect. Uh, Bill, let me ask you a, kind of a, a question, a philosophical one. Just looking at the inequality arguments, the things that came out after 2008 and the financial setbacks that we saw then, you kind of wonder what happens now. I'd seen something on Twitter the other day that said, we have suddenly gone from unskilled labor to essential workers overnight. How do you think this plays out in that debate, just in terms of inequality, watching white collar workers who get to stay home versus blue collar workers who are on the front lines on this? Well, it's very unfortunate that the job losses are concentrated in the part of the economy with households who don't have high incomes. You know, these service-related jobs are where, uh, you know, we're shut down right now and those will take time to come back. If you look at a country basis, uh, although the developing countries don't have big numbers yet uh, because the international travel into those countries isn't as, as large, over time, the deaths, the uh, overload of the medical system will be far worse in developing countries than it is in developed countries. So the, the fact that when things are bad, those who are worse off suffer the most, that's dramatically the case here. And so government policies really have to look at that hard in terms of the unemployment insurance, you know, which businesses employ lower income people, you know, some of these policies, uh, you know, are, are very broad brushed today and not that targeted. And because we're in uncharted territory, that's okay. But as we tune them, uh, uh, we need more data. And, you know, the foundation is doing some work to gather data uh, so that the policies can have a equity element to them. The foundation has also spent a lot of time working on education and, and watching kids out of school right now, watching governors in some states already canceling school for the rest of the year, wondering what that means for the fall. I, I wonder that same question there. there. There are kids who are able to get online, have school teachers and school systems that are set up online, have adults who are in the household who can help them out and, and kind of push them on their way. But it seems like that's another big area of inequality. What should we do about that? Well, it's a big problem because... If your school doesn't have that online capability, uh, you've lost three months of learning. I do think school uh, will be able to resume in the fall, but I don't think uh, this school year uh, there's going to be uh, any significant attendance. You know, maybe in the summer people would do something special, but that that would be very hard to do. As you say, most of the private schools. Uh, they're used to online. They've made sure all their students have uh, the device and the connectivity. Different school districts have decided some don't do online learning because it would be unjust in terms of the kids who don't have access. And so that's really a dilemma. Uh, there are philanthropists, uh, Ray Dalio, Jeff Bezos, and many others who are trying to fill that gap, you know, get some devices and connectivity out there. But, you know, in the end, the low-income students will be hurt the most by these school closures. In terms of being an investor, obviously you're a well-known investor. Not that you're probably spending that much time thinking about that, but have you changed your investment strategy at all since this all took place? No, I haven't put much thought into that. Uh, and I'm able to delegate uh, a lot of that. Um, 
you know, there are whole industries that are going to have uh, reduced demand even after supply comes back. And, you know, capital spending, you know, cars, houses, all those things, you know, it's hard to think that the the general animal spirits will be uh, anywhere near what they were uh, before this got started. But I haven't mapped that into, uh, you know, what, what it means for the, the market. What does your day look like these days? Uh, I'm on a lot of video calls. Uh, you know, we're talking about, okay, how do you make 7 billion doses? Uh, you know, how do you get these trials? There's over 20 compounds that look promising uh, as therapeutic. Some are highly touted, actually, where the data is not looking that good. Some that aren't fortunately not talked about, so we won't have panic buying of those things, are starting to look good. Uh, so overall, I'd say that's a hopeful area uh, you know, for several months ahead. So lots of meetings, you know, political leaders, governors, uh, you know, heads of countries, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa's head of the African Union and South Africa, and you know, talking about how you tailor policies for developing countries. We're just mapping what we're able to do onto those countries is is not uh, going to work, uh, and sadly, they they won't be able to reduce the rate of spread like uh, the rich countries that have taken this seriously. You mentioned potential therapeutics that are out there, and and, and a lot that people don't know about yet, so we're not hoarding them. What do you think about hydroxychloroquine? Uh, we really have to wait for the data to come in. Uh, we have seen why it looks good in the test tube and realized what makes it look good in the test tube doesn't map to the human model. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's not some possibility there, but, you know, it's what's crazy is that, you know, people latch on to, to remedies. We'll, we'll have data, and I, I believe some of them, uh, you know, including using recovered patient blood, antibody manufacturer, a uh, few of the antivirals, uh, some of them are, are likely to, to work. In terms of testing, you keep saying that that's a really important thing in order for us to kind of get back to business. Um, I, I know of healthcare workers here in the New York area who have been exposed but can't get tests. They may not have symptoms yet. When do we get to the point where we actually have enough tests that are out there and, and, and are able to really track this in a better situation? Well, the access to the back-end capacity of what's called a PCR machine is completely unmanaged. And so, you know, you can have somebody without symptoms who gets tested every day in some uh, wealthy community, and that definitely is going on. And you can have a healthcare worker, like you say, waiting three or four days. Anytime the queue is over 24 hours, that's complete mismanagement because the value of the result is far less uh, worthwhile when you're not uh, getting it very, very quickly. Uh, you know, the best case is the PCR test goes positive before you're symptomatic or infectious, and then you can act in such a way that you never infect anyone else. The, the natural thing would be to do like South Korea did and create a unified system. Uh, that, we haven't gotten uh, any interest uh, from the federal level. So the thinking is to create a website that you go in and enter your situation and it would give you a priority number. And then hopefully all the people who control the capacity limit the priority level that they accept. So they're giving these very quick results and to the right people. And you know, until we have that, um, we're in big trouble because 
as a percentage of 330 million, we're not going to be able to test many people, even with the capacity we'll have with the new machines and the so-called strip test. We won't every week be able to test more than a few percent of the population. And so to see rebound, it's got to be exactly the right few percent. And Bill, you mentioned that you think we will be going back to school in the fall. Do you think people will be back at stadiums, that they'll be getting on airplanes, maybe going on vacations at that point, too? Well, I need uh, maybe to kick off a discussion about this, uh, what opening up looks like, which is, you know, at the earliest for the U.S., I would say at the end of May. But the discussion of which activities bring societal value and how much risk of rebound they bring, that's you know, something everybody should participate in. And, uh, you know, I'm starting to write up my thoughts about that over over the next week. I don't think going to big, uh, say, public sports types events that the economic benefit relative to the risk that will work out in until we're back in normal times. I do think manufacturing, construction, uh, schools where you adopt protocols uh, that are helpful there, you know, we see most businesses in China opening up. We see places like South Korea, who had a medium-sized epidemic, uh, able to run things. And so really, how do you draw that line for that period that's going to be longer than we want it to be? Uh, that eventually the government's going to have to take all the expert input and create a new regime uh, for what's going on that's extremely sensitive to how well it's working through the quick turnaround, prioritized testing. Bill, I want to thank you very much for your time today. We truly appreciate it. Thank you, Becky. Take care. All right, super. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. We're back, and that's our show for today. Thanks for spending some of this crazy time with us on Squawk Pod. Tomorrow, the markets are closed for Good Friday, but we'll be here. We're bringing you a special conversation with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Ariana Huffington about life, work, and the will to unplug after COVID-19. One of the fundamental delusions that has been driving us all, which is that in order to be successful, we basically need to be on all the time. We are all seeing much more clearly the price we pay for that. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. 
To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. And now, more than ever, we encourage you to share this podcast with someone you're distanced from or someone you're quarantined with and tell us all about it. Tweet us at Squawk CNBC and share your isolation podcast routine. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.